invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm actually going to begin reading in chapter 12, verse 31. And we're going to go through the entirety of chapter 13 and chapter 14, verse 1. So we're going to do one verse before and one verse after chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31 through chapter 14, verse 1. I'll read out the New King James Version as is my custom. God's Word says, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Comparative term at all, uh, some of your Bibles might have the word better. Some of them might use the superlative that I'm going to show you the most excellent way or the best way, uh, depending upon your translation. But there really is no comparativeness to the word used here. It's not a, it's not a good, better, best word. It's simply the excellent way. We are looking really at the way of excellence. Where is it that God really wants us to travel and not to just choose between as if here's one way and here's a better way and here's the best way. But rather what he's communicating here really is what is the way? What is the way of excellence that God calls us to? And when we think of Philippians 4 and what God has called us to there that, that let your mind be set on things that are above, things that are pure, excellent, excellent, above reproach. And we have this whole list of things. This is what we strive after. And so we are not approaching chapter 13 saying, well, I have to choose between this or this, and there's good, better, best. And, and that this translation of this Greek word is, is uh, disappointing to a degree because 
it gives us the idea that somehow we're okay with the good or the better and and uh, that there's two ways to go and one's just more excellent than the other one. The other one's excellent too, but this is a more excellent way. That's not what he's communicating at all. What we are about to delve into is the way of excellence. When God calls us to focus on what is excellent, that that is what we set our mind on, this is the kind of thing, and if not the thing, that he is drawing us to. So before we get into this challenge of looking at the excellent way and what it is as well as what it is not, we need God's help. So let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us. We thank you that you have shown us not a mundane thing, but your best. You've shown us the way of excellence. And Lord, we want to be attentive to it today. We want to do our very best and give it to you. For you of all creatures in the universe, you have made us and you are deserving of our best. We often talk about giving our best to others, to certain pursuits of man. But Lord, you alone are really deserving of it. So we come to this passage asking for your help to grasp its truth and to bring it into our lives that we might please you. Guard this time. That it might be of your spirit and not of men. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is this way of excellence? What is this way that God calls us to, having just given us a statement to say that we should earnestly desire after the best or the the highest calling, the the gifts that are greater in terms of their uh, direct communication of God's Word, that we strive to get as close to that as uh, God leads us. What is this more excellent than the gifts? Not to... Not, not in comparison to them, but if we just focus on the gifts, we are going to run askew. And that is what has happened in too many churches, uh, even penetrating what were once very conservative churches. Uh, we have gone in and violated this very command. For we have supplanted the excellent way that God calls us to with something of lesser quality. And in fact, by doing so, we... Go against the excellence that God calls us toward. So in the Corinthian church, they were called upon to earnestly desire the best gifts, but there was something better out there. In terms not of better than the gifts of the Spirit, how can you improve upon them? Again, we're not doing comparative, but rather something more mature, something more in keeping with all of God's Word. And this draws us back to chapter 8, verse 1, where we learn that powerful phrase, knowledge puffs up, but edifies. Love edifies. And so we have 
going to look at, yes, knowledge is important and valuable, but it will not, we will never be able to explore its depth. We'll never be able to bring it into our life. It'll never penetrate our being the way God wants it to until we counterbalance that um, intellectual assent with a compassion driven by the love of God. And this, Paul points us to as the excellent way. The way of excellence for the church, for the Christian, is one of loving service. So when we come to the end of the first sentence of verse 31, we might start in our mind uh, setting up the nine gifts told to us earlier in the passage. Again, not an exclusive list, but uh, certainly an important one. And we might start trying to rank them. Well, what's the first one? What's the second one? And uh, some were trying to do that, and they did it chronologically by going back in Acts and saying, well, the best gift must be the first evidence, right? So therefore, speaking in tongues at the birth of the church was certainly the first evidence and therefore could easily be described as the greater gift, even though Paul specifically, down in chapter 14, verse 1, says that prophecy was his preference. This declaration of God's truth. And, of course, he's going to handle the tongues movement extensively in chapter 14. I really just want to reference it a little bit here. We're going to really handle it three weeks, two weeks from tonight, tonight, this morning. We're going to handle it two more weeks off before we get to chapter 14. But in the, in the reference point of what is best, we begin to catalog these and we look around at our world today and see how they look at it. And we have seen this strong movement away from the way of excellence into uh, the Corinthian model of immature faith. We've gone into immature acts instead of moving on to maturity. And the most excellent way, the way of excellence, is that way of Christian maturity. And a mature knowledge of God never puffs up for a full mature knowledge balanced by godly love is going to lead us to humility. And we're going to see that reflected in Paul's uh, well-loved description of love given to us in chapter 13. But it is in this context that the highest level of spirituality, the acme of our spiritual life, is not to attain to some experience of one gift. That is not the height of spirituality. But that has been communicated in far too many places. That somehow because our spiritual experience does not include direct divine revelation into my own mind or heart or mouth, that somehow I am living a lesser spiritual walk. By referencing the most excellent way, the way of excellence, uh, we are looking at what is the acme, what is the height what is the pinnacle of spirituality? And it is love. Not any specific gift. No, no matter how real it may seem and no matter how impressive it might be upon our flesh, the reality is, is that it is a life given over to the love of God and expressing it 
horizontally to one another. That, my friends, is the acme, the pinnacle of spiritual maturity. We have a more mature faith today than what was even available to them in Corinth in that day and in the day of this writing. I say, what do you mean, more mature? That's exactly what Paul has been telling us here, is that this excellent way is going to come. And the lesser aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the temporal, they're lesser not because they're not important, they're very important. We still derive our Christian knowledge from that work of the Holy Spirit in that day. So when I say lesser, I don't mean that it's unimportant. It was vitally important. And Paul recognized the vital importance of God revealing Himself to that generation. And we still drive benefit from that. But we call it a lesser work of the Holy Spirit because of His temporalness in terms of its activity. That is that it had a beginning and an end within a very brief context in which time, during which time, God's Word has been penned for us. And we still derive benefit from that ministry of the Holy Spirit that was temporally limited. And Paul says that it's it's has to be understood that way, that these three aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit listed here um, that we look at as revelatory in nature, as they reveal truth directly from God. And he lists them out here um, when he talks about which ones are uh, going to fail and might might struggle with that. And again, we're not talking about them failing as in they're going to let you down, but rather they are going to run their course and conclude. And so in verse 8, before we get to the first statement, love never fails, it says there are prophecies, they'll fail, tongues, they'll cease, knowledge will vanish away. And don't get in your mind this idea that by knowledge vanishing away that it's not going to be ever accessible. Again, these are all temporal terms. That at some point, these three things are going to stop occurring. And therefore, we must conclude that the way of excellence that Paul wants to move us towards is not going to take us into them, but out of them. It's going to bring us to a level of maturity that we are no longer needing God to put His Word in our mouth directly or in our mind directly um, by supernatural revelation of the Holy Spirit, but rather in maturity, we now have something complete, something, the, the word in my translation is perfect, but something that's finished that we can rest solidly on and mature and grow strong in and be Edified. Grow strong. Built up. That love edifies. I'm going to keep tying you back to chapter 8, verse 1. Because that is the theme verse for this book, if you haven't figured that out by now. How many weeks have I gotten to it? Almost all of them. Since then, at least. And so we're going to go back into that building up, strengthening, and maturing. And the only way you're going to mature spiritually is by engaging in this the most excellent way. 
not by engaging in something that has run its course, accomplished its purposes, and now we're going to go back into it. We're going to go back into an immature time of Christianity and try to resurrect that? And that's essentially what has happened over the course of my lifetime, over these last 50, 60 years. We have sought to bring this back and resurrect this, and we have it abused in extensive ways. I don't even need to get into all that. We will a couple of weeks from now. Um, and we look at this to go back into immaturity. It's almost as if the church in its, in its old age now is growing senile and wanting to go into a second childhood where we are growing less mature and not more mature. And we're seeking things that we have no reason to seek out. When we have the way of excellence in front of us, why are we distracted over here with things that have run their course and accomplished their purpose? And we are benefited from that purpose without needing to be engaged in it. For we have God's Word before us, which is the result of that work of the Holy Spirit in that age in that period of time defined, not necessarily by just apostolic, but defined by that period when God's Word had not been fully assembled, if you will, written, but not fully disseminated among His church. And so the way of excellence calls us to the height of spirituality. And shame on anyone and anyone among us that thinks that if we do not engage in some experiential event that we have no control over, that somehow we haven't reached the pinnacle or can't. This is a lie. And it does not build mature believers but it puffs up immature believers. If, only, if this was a sign of spiritual maturity, what in the world were the Corinthians doing speaking in tongues? That's my question. Would you catalog them among the most mature of the church ever? I wouldn't. <laughs> After all, I've read this book, haven't you? First and second Corinthians like, what is wrong with these people? Well, what is wrong today? That we again go back into the very error of the Corinthian church and think that the height of spirituality is have this, this supernatural experience rather than the mature knowledge of God's Word that is the excellent way that is going to be described for us here in chapter 13. Oh, that we would choose this way and recognize that this command or instruction for the Corinthian church was of also, I believe, a temporal nature. Go after revelation. That's great. Now's the time that you need it. Boy, do they need it. They needed that revelation. They needed the truth from God to be communicated one to another, whether through prophecy, word of knowledge, or tongues. They needed that. They did not have these scriptures before you. By the time Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, what were there? Three, four books of the, of the New Testament written by this point? Uh, maybe. 
Uh, were they in the hands of the Corinthians? Not likely. Uh, not unless Galatians had made its way around Galatia, Asia Minor, and made its way across into Macedonia and that area. How much of God's Word they had outside of Paul's personal teaching in that church was unknown. We don't know. And so, Corinthians, you need this. And in fact, we're going to get into chapter 14 where Paul's going to say something very interesting. Let's jump there real quick if I can. I didn't write this down. So, at the end there, he's going to tell them to, uh, in verse 38 of chapter 14, Let's back up and do chapter 37. Uh, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Isn't that a great statement? What is the idea there? Listen, I expect that since God is working in your midst, and this is still the, this time of revelation that there should be individuals within your body that can confirm this. They need to confirm with me because you recognize that I have this gift. And therefore, because, remember, going back to the purpose, it cannot conflict because the same God, Father, Son, Spirit, going to glorify Jesus Christ. Remember that back at the beginning of chapter 12? Let this person confirm this. But if they can't, then they can't. But Paul sensed their need for revelation during that period of time. Do we require that today? If we do, then I want you to understand something. If you abandon the way of excellence for something much more immature, which means that I have to have this experience of speaking in tongues, I have to have this experience of direct knowledge, divine knowledge from God that's not of human origin, if I want to have this gift of prophetic utterance, then I want to share with you, you need to brace yourself. Because now you need to accept the Quran. You need to accept the Book of Mormon. Because all these men claimed revelation from God since the finish of the Scriptures. And who are you to deny that? You must also probably accept the uh, science and, what is it, science and religion? What is it? The, yeah, the Christian science, but it's science, their, their document. You must accept all of those documents that claim to be revelatory. Because they all claim to have that from God. Granted, Muhammad, uh, in his first description, thought he was getting it from Satan. Isn't that interesting? In his own testimony... He thought it was a demon that was harassing him until the demon says, oh no, this is from God. Interesting. But they all claim divine revelation. What am I saying? That if you still are that immature level, then our Bible needs to have blank pages, many, many of them at the back to write down your revelations because they must be equal to it. But there is a way of excellence, a mature way that God has called us into. That I'm not looking anymore at those things to show the pinnacle of Christ working in my life. That I'm, I'm really in the Spirit because... 
aren't you impressed? I don't know what I, I'm afraid. I just said something terrible. I don't know. I hope not. I say, sometimes I really wish I could talk and find out what is going on in the head of my dog. What keeps running away, but he's got some issues. Um, we have a more excellent way than that. And that, that this, this way of excellence, this is the measure of mature Christianity. This that Paul's going to direct us into, this is where, how you're going to reach that pinnacle of maturity. This is where you're going to have the heights of a relationship with God is it when you focus and delve into and develop this area. Now, when you have some religious experience out there that men have contrived that goes back to a time of immaturity. And this is what Paul essentially describes in verse 11 when he says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Why go back? Have we just grown so immature that we think we need God to speak to us in dreams and visions and things along that line for something to be true? That I have to experience it myself? I can't trust what God writes in this Word? This is the way of excellence. There is no other option for the Christian. This is not a comparative term. Choose either what I have to say here in chapter 13, or you can find some lesser way to God. No, this is it. If you want to wade out there into these other things that have run their course and done their job, you are not going to grow more mature. You are going to Grow less mature. Then you'll be held captive in that immaturity to sin. I want to, before we get into chapter 13, and this is a really important chapter, um, I want to take you to three other passages to see the correlation. Let's read verse 1 first. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. This idea of the loving Christian life needs to be carefully defined because it has come to be something strange in our day. We have lost track of what it really means to love and confused it with permissiveness, We've excused it with um, acceptance, tolerance of sin mostly, but never tolerant of righteousness. You ever notice that? Whenever it comes to tolerance, it always the next thing out of their mouth usually is sin. We want to rightly define this, but let's look at some other passages. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. I want to see the pervasiveness of this in all of the writings. I wish I could have lots of time to do that throughout Scripture, but let's go to just a handful. I want to take some selections. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, to see the height of love. Let's jump back to verse 12. 
Colossians 3, let's start at verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, what does this sound like? It sounds like we just moved to the way of excellency. Above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection or of completion, of maturity. You want a claim of mature Christian walk? Then love had better be the pinnacle part that you point to. I can demonstrate my maturity in Christ by my love for Him and for His. Turn with me also to John chapter 13, Gospel of John chapter 13. We have this record for us here. Verse 34. Christ's commandment through John among his last. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the measure of discipleship. And as we discover the height of what it means to love sacrificially one another, we discover the maturity and the spiritual walk that God designed for us. Turn with me again to 1 Peter Chapter 4, verse 8. Again, I'll back up a verse. It says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things. Does that sound like the way of excellency? This is what it is for Peter. In Peter's mind, in Jesus' mind, in Paul's mind, you see the consistency? Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. This is what love, it's the pinnacle. That's the, that's the goal. That's the aim. And then First John, which we could spend a lot of time, of course, in First John. Chapter 4, verse 8. I hope some of you know the song out of that. Maybe we'll sing that as our closing. I'm pretty sure First John is still in my Bible here, if I can find it. There we go. We'll back up verse 7 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest toward us. That God sent His only begotten Son to the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In John's mind, as in Christ's commandment, as in Paul's description and Peter's description, the signal 
of Christianity is brotherly love. It reflects a genuine love of God in us as we express it to one another. This is the way of excellence. And brethren, there is no other way. Please understand verse 31 of chapter 12 to be not a comparative study of various ways that are good, better, or best. That is not what Paul's seeking to communicate. It is not in the Greek word there. It has been introduced by the translators and I want to extract it from your thinking that this is the best way, but I can walk this way too. No. There is the way of excellence. And this is what it is. That we love one another. You can have all these other gifts and you will end up being puffed up. He adds faith in there as well in verse 2. Gift of prophecy, mysteries, knowledge, have all faith. If you've got all of it, Paul says, if you've got the corner on the market and there's no potential anymore because you've actualized all revelatory gifts and you've actualized all faith and there's no more potential for you in any of these categories, you reach that point and you still don't have love, you have zero value in the kingdom of God. Zero. You're nothing. You have no value in the kingdom of God and therefore your value to the church is on that same plane. In fact, if anything, you become a detriment because you have knowledge that puffs up and you don't have the love by which is edification and therefore what doesn't build up the church is going to stagnate it or destroy it. Can a church be destroyed by the exercise of revelatory gifts? Yes. The Book of Mormon, for example. As soon as we start having those who can claim equal place with Scripture, we are in trouble. It has not benefited the church to have the revelatory gifts anymore because that which is complete has come. Accomplished. The Spirit has accomplished that purpose. Oh, if only I had enough faith and that, that that would be the pinnacle of my Christian life is if I could just trust God more. Many of us, that sounds good, doesn't it? If I could learn to trust God more, I'd be a more mature Christian. Sounds good. And on the surface, it might be. And occasionally down deep, perhaps. But what I find oftentimes is that we become puffed up even in our faith and say, well, I could believe God to do that. He's taking care of me. And you poor, pathetic losers that don't trust God enough, that's your problem. And I don't find any love there that God calls us to. But I find that attitude. And Paul says, if I have actualized all faith, that I could move mountains, and Christ seemed to think that it didn't take a whole lot to do that. But I don't have love, I'm nothing. 
My value in Christianity and in the kingdom of God, my value to the church and my spiritual walk are, have not reached their pinnacle. In fact, they may be declining even as I exercise prophecy, mysteries, knowledge, and faith. That's how critical this area is to your Christian walk. This is how critical it is to the exercise of ministry within the church. He goes on in verse 3, and now we have walked out of the revelatory gifts, and now we're going to walk into these other areas that we have already talked about a little bit. I tried to expand our understanding of gifts, and I think this is really important here in verse 3 to add to the list of nine. He's going to include some things that we might say, well, that's just Christian living. Well, all the gifts of the Spirit in terms of ministry are wrapped up in Christian living. It says that some are blessed with the capacity by the Spirit to do them um, and be very effectual in them and do them particularly to God's glory. So we are all called to evangelize, are we not? And yet some are particularly blessed in the work of the Spirit in their life to be effectual in that area. It doesn't get me off the hook if I don't have that gift to not have to share the gospel with people. Just as much as just because I don't have the gift of, of preaching, teaching, that you don't have a responsibility to communicate God's word to people. Certainly within your home you do. You carry that responsibility. But somehow I'm off the hook and, and uh, uh, somebody asks me a question about God's word or the truth of scripture or the gospel. Um, go call my pastor. He's got the gift. No, you don't have that prerogative. We, all the gifts are wrapped up in the Christian experience. And we come to this verse, and I think it begins to help us expand Paul's understanding of what it means to be ministering by the Spirit. Again, from a negative direction, but we still have it here listed. Though I will stole all my goods to feed the poor. Is that a gift? That we are willing to sacrificially give. We know that there's a grace of giving. That some are blessed with that. We are told that elsewhere. And But we have this whole idea that we have those that have a special heart that God has given them to care for the poor. And if he goes to that to the nth degree and gives all of his stuff away, is he somehow the most valuable? And has he reached his maturity in his Christian walk? No. If he's doing it for the wrong reason he's doing it out of something other than a love for them. But, and yes, you can get puffed up in being poor and giving everything away. It can lead you to arrogance. He goes on to another one. Though I give my body. Um, the idea here is, is to, the, to be burned up or to be, to be used up. If I, if I just exert myself and I, and I just pour energy and I have this and I exert it and I just use it up for people. And I give my body. And I do it for whatever motives other than love. What's its value? None. It doesn't benefit your Christian life if it's done for selfish, arrogant reasons. Benefits them and none at all. 
So we are called to this way of excellence. Do I choose between these? No. We are still going to minister. You're still going to exercise the gifts of the Spirit. But we recognize that the ministry itself is not going to develop my Christian life. And we have somewhat taught that in the church. And I've been guilty of that too on occasions where, you know, if you really want to mature, you've got to exercise. If you really want to grow strong, you've got to exercise. You can't just eat, 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 eat and never exercise. What happens then? You guys don't know. Um, let me help you because I do that sometimes. Um, when I eat, 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 never exercise, I get fat. I don't get strong. I have more weight to throw around. There's a lot of Christians throwing weight around that aren't strong. You understand what I'm saying? They got all this head knowledge and they're all puffed up and they're all fat with it and they throw that weight around but try to get them out there to actually do something for somebody. To actually serve somebody out of love. Someone that can't pay them back and won't applaud them. Yeah, there's a lot of fat Christians throwing weight around. I know this about the Bible. I know that. But where are they at in service? So I've taught that. You know, you have to exercise. And it's just got some genuineness to it. But you know what? There's two kinds of exercise. You do know that. And most of the exercise that we engage in is worthless. You know why? Because it accomplishes little. In fact, sometimes it's costing society for us to exercise. I say, what are you talking about? You go to the gyms, to the health centers, <laughs> okay, and walk through there. First of all, notice how many mirrors there are, okay? But notice how many of those things are plugged in. Got this running machine, I plug it in, and it starts from this motor. And I'm using up electricity that is, by the way, you don't need electricity to run. Just letting you know. Okay, you don't need it, you can do it without it. Really, you don't even need a gym membership to lift weights. Okay, you just need a shovel and a pile of dirt or manure. Okay, we have made exercise almost kind of a demigod where we do it purely to do it. And we're not accomplishing it. We're not running anywhere. We're just running. We're not lifting anything. We're just lifting. We're not sitting up to any... We're just sitting up. In other words, we're doing this exercise, repetitive activity, physical activity to condition these bodies. But in the end, we've exerted all this energy and we've accomplished nothing. Nothing was built... Nothing was made, nothing was grown, nothing. And I fear that ministry in the church is like that. It's exercise for exercise's sake. And we haven't done anything. Just think of all that energy. You see, what we should do is have those little things you run on, uh, hard to run on, not helping you, making it harder, put a little generator and send some electricity into the plug instead of out of it then you'll have a worthwhile reason to run. I need the lights on. Yeah, I knew you were going to know that. You see, in the church, we're out there running on this treadmill 
And we're not helping. We're pulling it away. What's the difference? Love. So I don't want you just to minister to minister because I can't be mature in the Lord, the pastor says, unless I'm in ministry. Well, in a sense that's true, but it's not true because really it's the motive for ministry that is of primary importance to it. It's the energy. Where is the energy coming from? Where is the motive? Where is the moving? And the moving needs to be in love. And yes, you can give everything away for the poor. You can give your body completely up to something and not profit anything. Not yourself, not the church, not the kingdom of God. Because you're just running. And it doesn't help anybody. You're not doing anything. You're not accomplishing anything other than trying to invigorate yourself. And in the end, all you need really for that is a mirror. So you can look at yourself. Wow. Look what all my exercise has done. For whom? I don't want to go from having a bunch of fat Christians throwing their weight around to having a bunch of bulked up Christians throwing their weight around. We want to be toned, and love is the toning. That is that we are working and exercising and accomplishing something in people's lives as we're doing it. And so I can go and and get enough exercise if I'll just get out of my chair and away from my computer and go haul shingles up onto Mr. Fry's roof or wherever else. Or It's coming, and I know it. I'm not looking forward to it, but it's coming. This um, of getting out there and doing something that helps someone. Believe it or not, there's probably enough exercise out there to be done. We'll exert ourselves. Well, spiritually, it's the same is true, and we tried to communicate that last week. That there are so many areas of ministry that we have lost track of. Paul lists just a couple of them here in verse 3 that I believe are spiritual gifts. Caring for poor, of of those that are struggling to help themselves, of giving of your physical energy and body, even to the point of being burned out. Oh, that we would be burned out. I don't want to just be fodder for a fire when I'm done. I'd rather be burned out now. What is the driving force? It is love. And we're going to investigate love itself, its definition next week. This week I really just want to lay the foundation. My greatest fear is that some of you will be here this week and not next. My other greatest fear is that some will come next week and not listen to this first. For this is a tandem message. Understanding the necessity of love as the way of excellency and then understanding what love is next week. What is it? If it's not acts of service, what is it? What does it look like and what isn't it? So we are called upon to maturity. The evidence of that maturity in your life is not speaking in tongues, it's not having dreams and visions, It's not really even ministry.
per se. It's when without condition you can love your brethren no matter what the cost to you.